Hello and welcome to Work Interrupted, a new podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'll be talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm delighted to welcome Tamara Rojo, the Artistic Director and Lead Principal Dancer at the English National Ballet. Tamara has gained international recognition for outstanding technique, inspired interpretations and artistry in a wide range of classical and contemporary roles. Brought up in Madrid, she's won masses of awards for her work and was awarded to CBE in 2016. She's also one of the most eloquent advocates for the arts I've ever met, and I've met a fair few. In this conversation, she talks about ambition, what it's like to have your private life splashed all over the tabloids, and the five-layer cake she baked during lockdown. Lovely to have you on the podcast, Mara. Thanks so much for agreeing to do this. Thank you. From a work point of view, this must have been absolutely devastating for you. You moved into your state-of-the-art home last year. You had an incredible programme lined up. You had international productions lined up as well as national touring. It was all the product of years of hard work and you were raring to go. And then this happens. At what point did it really sink in for you what coronavirus would mean for you and English National Ballet? I guess I had a bit of warning from the point of view that my family lives in Spain and I have many friends and colleagues in Italy. So I had seen it coming. I, I, was, I was seeing how it was approaching the UK and I knew what measures had been taken in Italy and in Spain. Um, so in a way, from that point of view, it wasn't a complete surprise. I guess what was hard is what you've said before, that we have worked very hard over the last seven years to make English National Ballet less reliant on public funding. And that was something that was important for me from like an ethical point of view. I, I wanted us to be as effective with public funding as possible. And for that, we had looked at our business model and we had been uh, you know, proactive and we built a whole building so we could have um, events and we could create more outreach and we could share the, the spaces with other organizations. We had multiplied our fundraising capacity. Our box office was full which was, you know, also quite empowering as an organization. And, and the, the, the interesting side is that success has been the worst part of it because the fact that only a third of our costs are covered now by public funding makes us far more vulnerable than we would have been if we hadn't tried to, to take control and, and be a better organization. And I, I guess that's, that's what is, to a certain extent, heartbreaking right now. Uh, you know, you receive help and then you turn into a profit. That then means that the government has three times what they gave you initially in tax. So, so, so that that feeling of of duty um, uh, towards the wider society that I guess is enhanced even more in this situation. Um, it 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 does kind of struggle to 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 find a balance with the current situation and the feeling of 
yeah, of, of somehow being punished for for our, of our own success. But you know, I I I think we will come back and things will come back. I, I'm absolutely convinced of that. Mm. It's. I've only interviewed a few ballet dancers, Carlos Acosta a couple of times and um, Agnes Oak. I'm trying to think whether there are any others. And the thing that struck me was the unbelievable self-discipline you have to have at a, as a dancer from a very, very early age. And I think this marks you out from most other artists and most other workers, that ruthless focus, that striving for, for, for perfection and the need to drive yourself harder You've always been incredibly focused and ambitious and have achieved many of your goals. Do you think it makes it harder to be in a situation where none of us has very much control over what happens next? I genuinely think this situation is hard for everybody. Um, I, I cannot imagine anybody that feels happy or content um, in this situation. Um, but I guess if... I don't know that that I I would say that I, you know I'm I'm very lucky I have a home I have an income um and a reduced income but it's still an income um so I I don't I don't feel like I have the right to complain from a personal point of view uh for me my worry is is the organization is English National Ballet and all the artists and all the workforce um, related to that, because like all uh, performance organizations, we have a core group of people that are our employees, but we employ hundreds, thousands of uh, specialist workforce um, that depend on us uh, for their survival. And and those are the ones that, that I, I worry the more, more. And that's what makes me most frustrating, frustrated at this point is, is the feeling that I feel that I need to do something, <laughs> I uh, I need uh, I have that responsibility and 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 that that feeling of not being able to do very much is is quite frustrating and and maybe in that yes my character and my my drive also makes it worse but um, but personally I I just I don't feel like I have the right to complain. Mm. I mean, I, I feel similar. I don't have much of an income, actually, but for various reasons, um, you know, I, I'll be OK, I'll survive. Uh, but it is heartbreaking to think of all the people who will lose their jobs. But also I know many people, I'm freelance, and uh, many people I know are freelance and they're getting minimal help from the government and are likely to get minimal help from the government in the near future. And that's just incredibly, incredibly hard to know how to deal with and I think at the moment we're all balancing our own pain in relation to our lives to some extent and anxiety about people we care about with the much bigger picture which is of horrendous anxiety for our fellow citizens I think and um, I do think that's a very hard thing to to handle actually I mean how how do you feel you're sort of managing emotionally on that front I have up and downs. I, I think I, I had quite a few tough weeks in the middle of it, really, really sad. Um, but I think, uh, like um, like you say, even, even making the case for the art, which is something that I have done all my life, because I truly believe that the arts are 
essential to humanity and that at times like this even more so because we can heal and we can help people understand and mourn and recover and find hope um, but how do you make the case when there is so much need you know that there is there is so much emergency uh, and, and even that uh, i i struggle with uh, from from that point of view um so so there was there was there were points where yes you, you question everything um and and i think it's so overwhelming uh, but i think what I've tried to do is, is allow that feeling, allow those feelings to, to come and allow them to go and get up again. And, and it has helped me very much. I've been doing ballet class, but also sharing ballet class mm. with the world. And, and that thing that I had to get up every morning and every morning I had to, you know, put my ballet clothes on and, and get warm and prepare a class and then share it, doing something for somebody else, I guess, every day. That has helped me. Yes, I think that's very interesting. I love your kitchen, by the way. I'm very envious of your kitchen. I couldn't be with the ballet moves, but I would like a kitchen like that. Uh, I think I do think that actually that's how many of us have found a degree of solace in doing what we can at this time, and whether that's phoning people. I've been phoning a lot of people, and. Um, and uh, you know, kind of emailing people, sending cards to people, just kind of wanting to reach out to people. And I do think perhaps there's a bit of a sense of increased social solidarity in a way that we haven't felt in this country or maybe even globally for a while. And maybe that's one of the things that can come out of this if we can preserve it in some way. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I hope so too. I mean we do live particularly in london in quite a stressful um city and i remember at some times feeling that there was even a lot of violence in the way people treated each other you know you you felt cab drivers against cyclists cyclists against uh, walking people and you know in the underground you just felt this constant aggravation because of the stress and because of the constant a feeling of being late everywhere and having to get somewhere and, you know, pressures that we all have and that in big cities somehow they get enhanced because we're all on top of, of each other. And and even lately that I've started to, like, go out and, you know, once a week and go for a walk, or the feeling is different. Partly, obviously, it's very empty, but partly you cross people and there's a I think a kindness, or maybe I'm just feeling what I want to feel. But the, there is a, an understanding, you know. You you see someone elderly coming your way, you cross to the other side, you give them space, you consider people in supermarkets. Hopefully, I think those those feelings of 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 um, yeah of patience, <laughs> if if nothing else, towards one another, uh, can remain. Yes, I, I felt that too. Uh, of course, there are some people who are not behaving so well, but I do think, generally speaking, there is a greater sense of of solidarity, actually, and smiling at people when you see them and pass them in the street, things that you don't, we don't normally do. And I think maybe we just all feel in some ways we are all in this together and we do feel a little less alone at those moments of connection. And if nothing else, the relationships with, with the neighbours. I mean, I've never had 
such long conversations with my mm. neighbors. Uh, I mean, I, I did know them already. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm Spanish, so I talk to anybody. Uh, so <laughs> definitely my neighbors are, are people that I know by name and that, and that, you know, we talk on a regular basis. But now we have proper conversations beyond, hello, hello, how are you? And the bin man didn't pick up this week or whatever. Yes. Um, Yes, proper conversations. Perhaps that's one of the legacies of this whole <laughs> dreadful period. Uh, putting aside, I mean, obviously you can't really put aside your huge anxiety about English National Ballet and all your colleagues and all the people who are dependent on it for their money, basically, in order to be able to pay their rent. What have you found hardest about lockdown? I mean, I've been really, really busy, like busier than ever in many ways uh, because of having to rethink all the strategies rethink all the schedules international touring uh, national touring programs choreographers it's a huge amount of work that goes into planning a season and as the season unraveled and and literally was becoming sand in front of us and and, and you know we we had to talk to so many um, so many people involved in making it happen, things that have been taking three years, five years to come together. We had to unpick again and find solutions for. Um, so it's been a very busy period. And I think that has been very helpful for me uh, to, to be so busy. I think for me, fear for my parents, you know, they, they are in Madrid, in the center of, of one of the worst hit areas in Spain. And they've been in lockdown now for 10 weeks. So that's a very long time for for two two people, two elderly people. So so that was one of my constant worries. Um, and another thing was even um, my own sanity, if 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 that makes sense. I I there was one point where I did start to feel afraid of going out um, after having been locked for almost two weeks at the, at, at some point. Um, and that I felt a bit worried about that. Uh, as well um, but it's the constant you know I, I think it's the constant stress that perhaps you don't feel but it is there and then at night you have all these nightmares and mm -hmm. and this problem sleeping and I think not so much like I said the, the stress of work even though it was it has been very stressful but that's normal stress I know how to cope with that it's the other underlying stress of hearing the news and hearing what's happening out there and and things getting really really bad um, that yeah. affects you in ways that I don't think we will be able to understand until it's all over I think that's exactly right I think in during the days we can we've reached a, a kind of I know that the phrase the new normal is overused but we reached a kind of semi new normality most of us we conduct our days in a particular way and we can almost pretend it's normal and then at night it all explodes from our unconscious into our dreams and for me when I wake up it's sort of the first thing that hits me that we're kind of living through this disaster movie but yes you've got to go and brush your teeth and have a shower and do all the things you normally do and it all feels a bit surreal. The one thing I, I would say is that I, I am very tired and, and when I talk to people they are all exhausted and again, I don't think it is just because we're working hard. You know, my team, almost 90% of our company is furloughed. So it's very reduced. And those that are still 
ongoing. We, we are a maximum capacity because we're taking on everyone's roles. Um, but it's not that because we're all people accustomed to stress. We, we work in the performing arts. It's what we do. So I, what I can see is, is not that, that there is that other level of, of tiredness, uh, of exhaustion, that I think is what happens at night. That means that you never really rest. I think that's exactly right. So I imagine you haven't been baking a lot of banana bread or binge watching Netflix as lots of other people seem to have been doing. You know what I, I did? I started baking for the first time in my life. <laughs> and that has been the one thing that has given me solace. I have loved it. I have loved the process. It's the one time where I felt quietness inside my mind was just making cakes and my, it was my birthday not long ago and I made myself a five-tier cake with seven flavors and icing that never in my life attempted to do anything like it um, and you know we're only two of us so somebody has to eat it uh, which is not exactly the, the recommended diet for a ballet dancer but the process of making it was such a pleasure I honestly loved every minute of it. <laughs> You're definitely the first ballet dancer I've ever come across who's made a seven-tier cake. Well, the first person, actually. But that's absolutely amazing. I hate cooking, and I still hate cooking, but even I ended up making banana bread because I kept seeing it on Instagram and Twitter and everywhere. But I can't say it gave me the sense of deep, soothing peace. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> So I wanted to ask also that you've obviously, as a ballet dancer, the self-discipline you've had to develop and the mental toughness you've had to develop, do you think that's given you an advantage in terms, I mean, you must be incredibly resilient. You've had to deal, apart from anything else, with a lot of physical pain in your life because all ballet dancers do. Do you think that gives you an advantage over most people in a situation like this? I mean, I don't know. The, the short answer is I, I, I can't, I'm not in other people's minds. So I, I, all I know is my experience. So I don't know how other people feel. Um, um, I do know that, yes, dancers are uh, resilient and we're also very adaptable. And I guess, especially in the English National Valley, we're a touring company. So we are famously adaptable in that you arrive to a theatre and that day, that evening, you just put on a show, no matter what, and you travel across um, countries and continents and you adapt to new times and new foods and everything. So so in a way, yes, I, I guess uh, we have muscle in terms of resilience and adaptability. Um, on the other hand, I, I am someone that I always feel a little bit uncomfortable with this melodramatic rhetoric about the sacrifice of the ballet dancer. You know, it is a tough, it is a tough um, job, uh, but it's, it is a, a profession that we choose. And, and there are other much tougher and less celebrated um, uh, professions in the world. So I, I always try to not indulge very much on, on the self-pity side of it. I know that English National Ballet has always had a very strong social conscience and uh, was one of the first arts organisations to do outreach work and of course in its new home in the East End there would have been, there will be more opportunities to reach out to um, people who probably have higher levels of deprivation and one could argue more need. So perhaps 
what we all have to do is work out what we can bring to the party. And I think one of the things that's been striking about your career is that from you had a very clear vision and focus from an early age, not necessarily to change society, but certainly that dance was going to be at the heart of it. Can you tell me when it when it was? I know you started dancing when you were five, but when did you decide that dance was going to be the thing for you, your life and your work? Um, actually, yes. I mean, I had a, a very naive dream when I was a child of being a ballerina. And I mean naive because I had never actually seen a ballet show in Spain. We didn't have access to ballet as, as you do in the United Kingdom. So, so I happened to enter by accident um, a ballet class because my mom uh, was working. She was arriving late and it was raining. And the teacher in the school saw me in the playground and she said, come into the gym uh, and just take some refuge. It's cold outside. And I went in and they were doing ballet. And I did not know what that was. I just knew I needed to be there and I wanted to be there. And so I started to take ballet class, but without any idea or preconceptions that there was a performing arts attached to the ballet class. I thought ballet class was ballet and that when you became good ballerina, you became the teacher and that was it. <laughs> um, so for, for me, it was a bit of a shock that, that there was a performing arts aspect to it. And I, it was certainly not my nature to be a performer. Um, I was an only child and quite um, introverted. So I, I, I was not looking forward to that aspect. But, you know, I loved dancing. So, so it kind of happened that I ended up dancing uh, from, from that point of view because I love the practice. Um, uh, but in terms of the social conscious of what ballet and the arts can be, it really changed here in the United Kingdom. Because in Europe, most artistic organizations are completely funded by the government, as in 90%, 100%. And then, therefore, there is a, there is a tendency to forget the audience and the society that these um, organizations are there to serve and they become a little bit self-serving in that they are only interested in the standard of the art itself and not in the reach and not in the impact, in the social impact. I learned that here um, and I did because you have one of the most extraordinary um, uh, uh, structures and, and that includes the Arts Council and the transparency and, and, the, and I know it's not perfect and I know many people are constantly disappointed but I can tell you it's, it's the best balance that I have found around the world this balance of having some funding from the government in exchange for a social duty but also in exchange for a relevance and therefore that you need to still be successful in the box office i.e. relevant to the society and to the audience um, and also uh, successful in fundraising and successful in being entrepreneurial uh, so that you cannot just do art for art for your own sake. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with art for art's sake, but I do have a problem with art for, for one's, one person's sake. Um, so, so I learned all of that here and particularly as a dancer of English National Ballet when I was very young, as I said, we from the beginning, the vision of the of those that created this company was to take the greatest ballet to the widest audience, wherever they are, whatever their means. And that was very important, whatever their means. And so 
since I started dancing, we tour everywhere. We tour with very small stages. We tour around the country um, uh, with very uh, low uh, ticket um, uh, prices. Um, and like you said, this was the first company that had an outreach program. The dancers, as a dancer, I had always been involved in those aspects too. You know, you go out there, you go to schools, you go to hospitals, you, you do your bit. And that's why I wanted to direct this company. And, and it is still very much what motivates me, but also what inspires my vision. Even in the repertoire that I choose or the collaborators that I choose, there's a reason why I've, I've, uh, I've uh, launched programs for female choreography and also why I invited someone like Akram Khan, someone not part of the ballet world, to create the ultimate classical ballet, um, to reflect these other voices of the Society of London. And like you said, we moved to Canning Town. Um, I mean, we are actually between Tower Hamlets and Canning Town and Tower Newton. So, so in, in an area of London that, that has a lot of need in terms of um, outreach. And so that, that work that we want to do of, uh, of bringing the arts to the education, to the elderly, to people suffering from Parkinson's, all that work that we do is central part of, of our mission. And, and I do it because, like you said, I do believe that the arts, first and foremost, are a right, a human right that everybody should have access to, but also they are a catalyst and they can really transform the life of people and they can really give social mobility and hope to people. Yes, that's I've, I've rarely heard it put so well, Tamara. I think that's I think that's really an extraordinary way of expressing it. I, you and I met at a conference in Dubai when I had put together a panel on the importance of the arts in education because increasingly the emphasis has been towards STEM. And um, I think many of us have been a bit worried about the fact that the arts have had lower and lower uh, emphasis and that I think dance hasn't even been on the curriculum in recent years. Am I, am I right yeah. about that? Yes, there has been a, a huge um, drop in arts um, activities or art, arts uh, curriculum in the schools because they are not part of what the government had considered to be essential, um, which is, is actually very counterproductive. As, as we look at a society that has to be more creative than ever, and that was even before COVID, uh, and that has to, to provide professions that fluctuate all the time, uh, Nobody comes out, or very few people today, come out and join one organization and spend the next 50 years working in that one organization. People have to be creative. They have to have imagination. Uh, careers change all the time. Whole professions are invented within a decade. Um, and the arts give you those skills, as well as emotional skills and empathy. He also gives you those skills to be adaptable, and they should be more uh, needed and more in the curriculum than ever. I think that's exactly right. And and I think it's it's interesting as well, because it's not just, as you say, it's not just the actual art form that, that enables you to develop your creativity. It's the fact that most artists of any kind, whether they're writers, dancers, visual artists, don't have a job. Uh, they live on a precarious basis. They always have done. Incomes have been very low. Not all that many have been able to live by their art. They have to be flexible 
and agile, to use the business jargon, in order to survive. So you could argue that they are the very best people to guide us now as we adapt to the new reality of, of life in and after a pandemic, because that kind of flexibility was always going to be what was needed to the changing workplace with AI, the rise of the robot, etc, etc. But all of that, I assume, will be accelerated by this revolution we're living through. Indeed. And I think there's all the questions about that that are not being asked because we're in the middle of a crisis. There's a lot of instruments, digital instruments and apps that governments are using um, because of the pandemic that at some point we'll have to go into as a society question whether they are the ethical thing to have. And I know now we don't have the time and therefore we're accepting them. Um, But all of that um, evolution that is going to be accelerated towards uh, artificial intelligence and robotics and apps that follow you and all kinds of things that we know are there because because artists have imagined them uh, for decades and we have seen them in movies and we have read them in books <laughs> funnily enough um, because of the artist visions we know what's coming um, but there hasn't been a conversation from an ethical and an empathy point of view about whether or not as a society we want to do this. And again, I think artists should be in the middle of those conversations. It cannot be just driven by business interest um, and all politics. Absolutely right. And I was fascinated to see that you you had uh, a production of Akram Khan's Creature exploring AI coming up, which, which I presume you commissioned. Did you commission that? I did, I did. Yeah. And, and I, it's because we both have a, a joint fascination for AI and for the, uh, for the human um, uh, dimensions of it. Uh, more than, I mean, I think Akram is very fascinated by the actual technology of it. Uh, and I, I know he's done quite a few documentaries about it. Um, but we both are share a fascination about the human dimensions of it. What does it mean to be a creator of a different kind of life? Where does it put us as humans? And when does that creation sit within our understanding of human rights? Um, among other things that I think ought to be the center of the conversation, but, but interestingly are not even discussed at, at any level, um, even though decisions are being made. So that, that is something that I, I do have concerns about. Absolutely. I, I'm a huge fan of Akram Khan, by the way. I interviewed him some years ago. I think he's mm-hmm. absolutely phenomenal. And I'm dying to see that, though obviously it, it will have to wait for the moment. <laughs> Tragically, along with every single And it will come. Yeah. And it will come. Good. Well, I can't wait for that. But I, I, I do think... I think that the Cambridge Analytica scandal and uh, what we've learned about Facebook and the role that technology has played in our lives in the last few years in relation to democracy, as well as every other area of our lives, has been a wake-up call for quite a few people, perhaps not for everyone. And I completely agree that we are going to have to be more aware of the ethical issues involved as our life is more and more transformed by AI. But one of the biggest questions that gives rise to is, is of course, which jobs will remain and which jobs will go. And that has also been accelerated by this nightmare that we're living through. But I think for the moment, we can probably be relatively confident that artists and art 
are one of the few, being an artist is one of the few jobs that is not easily replaceable by a robot. Of course, lots of people have said, oh, well, we've created robots that do the arts or whatever, but I certainly haven't seen anything that matches Tolstoy or Keats or um, Shakespeare or whatever. So perhaps that's another reason that we should be making the stronger argument about the importance of the arts, both as just as, as a role for the human in whatever society we have in the future. Indeed, I, I agree with you. I mean, I as the education, the arts education, is not only so that you become a professional artist. I think it, if you see those people that we admire the most, incredibly successful people, tend to be people that have received a rounded education. And, and that's what I mean in terms of the importance of the arts within the school system. It's not so that millions of people become professional ballet dancers. That's, that's not necessarily necessary. The right thing for anybody, uh, but actually that that they are they are capable of uh, of having skills that any practice of art bring to you, like resilience, like self awareness, um, like uh, empathy, um, among other things. Uh, so so those those are the things that are needed. Uh, I, I believe, like you said, when we look forward into what kind of society we're going to find after COVID, but also with the rise of artificial intelligence and what kind of professions are going to be needed and what kind of lateral thinking is going to be needed from anyone, including those that are in traditional professions. Absolutely right. I was interested to read that uh, you, was it your parents who insisted that you went to evening classes even while you were at uh, ballet school uh, so that you ended up you've ended up with three degrees including most recently a, a, a PhD in performing arts which would suggest a huge intellectual curiosity from an early age what what do you think stimulated that intellectual curiosity I don't know I, I am a naturally curious person um, I think partly partly perhaps like I say I was an only child and I was part of an adult environment very early on. Spain, in the transition period from the Franco era into the democracy, was a very exciting place. And my parents were very actively involved in the transition, in the politics, in the creation of this new uh, Spain. Um, and I, they took me everywhere. They had nowhere else to leave me. <laughs> so um, I was part of those conversations since, since I was very, very, very young. And, and I was naturally curious and I was accepted in those conversations as, as a member of it so I was allowed to ask questions I was explaining things I was allowed to be part of the conversation um, and and then like you said that there was also certain pressure from from my mother especially about education I think because she did not have the opportunity she wanted and deserved uh, because uh, her her father didn't allow her to pursue the career she wanted to. She felt that I had the chance and therefore I had the duty. Um, and so it was it was something that was not negotiable in my in my house. Even when I was already a professional dancer, I, I had to I had to continue to study. And I am very grateful for that. Uh, I don't think I will be director now of English National Valley if I hadn't pursued that education. And I think you said you wanted to be um, a director of um, 
uh, a ballet organization some time ago you when did you first know that you wanted to do that as well as be a dancer it was a, a slow progression i think i was in my 30s and i i was part of an, a, a ballet company the royal ballet very steep in tradition but i wasn't part of that tradition i didn't come from the ballet school and I was a more international artist. I have worked in other companies. So I had a different perspective and I had a quite a challenging time with the argument of this is how it's always been and this is how we do it and this is you know and, and so I was probably questioning uh, why things were done and, and and when do things become tradition? Uh, what does they actually mean? Uh, what is the place of tradition versus the place of innovation in an art form that is intrinsically alive because it's not a book, it's never finished. You know, you, like, ballet is only uh, alive as it is being performed by living objects. Um, so, so how do you balance that? That how do you balance the weight of tradition versus the need of a human being to express themselves? Um, and then there was also a, a conversation that I had. I, I was um, asked by the government of Spain to advise them in how to create a ballet company of, of, of you know, of, of, uh, of prestige and category. And it, it didn't go anywhere very quickly. The crisis came in 2008 and, and things stopped. But it did give me um, an opportunity to stop and think what kind of ballet company I would like to create if I could start from zero and and what kind of director I wanted to be. And again, you know, I, I studied, I, I went to a, a really, really good um, program in Ipswich, in, uh, which was uh, the Rural Retreats for Future Leaders in Dance. I shadowed Karen Kane. She was the Artistic Director of National Ballet of Canada, and she had made a very successful transition from being a, a star ballerina herself into being the director. Um, and and so I just I just took my time uh, to learn. But it, I guess it was the same questioning mind um, and also the fact of being an outsider that I think gives you a perspective on things and the ability to question them. Yes, I think that that's very interesting and interesting that it was your partly your mother's experience that um, w was a sort of driver towards her wanting you to succeed in a way that she hadn't been able to. And perhaps I wonder if that means that you were able to own your ambition from a relatively early age in a way that many women don't feel comfortable doing. I mean, I think I, I think there's still a little bit of a cultural taboo in relation to ambition. Uh, women, ambitious women get called pushy or or um, feisty or <laughs> grasping or whatever. I mean, how do you wh where are you on the whole kind of gender thing in relation to ambition? In all honesty, I only became aware of that perception very late, like only a few years ago. And once I was already an artistic director, it was then that suddenly I was being called pushy, ambitious in, in a not positive way. Um, I, I never encountered that as a young woman in Spain, um, maybe perhaps because of the kind of politic uh, politics environment in, in which my parents were involved, where women were equal to men, everybody had a voice, everybody had ambitions, everybody had a role to play. Um, and then 
throughout my life, I, I never felt that, that that was a problem or anything to be ashamed of uh, to be ambitious. I thought you ought to be ambitious if you wanted to achieve anything or change anything. Uh, but it is true that I, I found out later um, that was not an attractive quality. So I, I might have affected my uh, romantic life without me knowing, but other than that, <laughs> I don't think it ever stopped me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but your romantic life now appears to be okay as far as one can tell from the newspapers anyway yeah indeed indeed there you go <laughs> that's a whole other issue <laughs> and while we're talking about sexism it seems that you had a very very sexist experience two or three years ago when your relationship was all over the news you know older woman has younger boyfriend shock horror uh, which of course is the absolute norm when it's the other way around um, how did you feel about that at the time and how did you deal with that negative coverage that was that was painful um i think because i have always been a very private person and uh, and i have never made a business of my private life um so um to see it spread across the papers in that tone, you know, in that, and it was like pushy, aggressive, uh, ambitious director has young boyfriend. <laughs> but, but, you know, uh, but the interesting thing is that sometimes those things are the making of a person. I think I probably care less now about what mm. people publish in papers, and it also made uh, very clear that this relationship was the right one mm. uh, because we both suddenly had to uh, come to terms with it being a public relationship and whether or not it was something we wanted to fight for. Uh, so in a way, in the end, it was not an, a, a negative thing. Although at the time it was, it was really very painful. Also because it was very unfair. There was lots of innuendo and you can't really defend yourself against innuendo and and uh, you know and alleged opinions anonymous opinions so it felt very unfair uh, and cruel at the time uh, but i think i don't know anybody that is in a public position that hasn't gone through something like that at some point mm. I think, I mean, it sounds absolutely dreadful, but I, I think also with social media now, even people who are not, don't have a particularly high public profile. I mean, any, you know, any woman who goes on telly is standardly, you just look at your Twitter stream afterwards and it's really, really unpleasant, all about how old and ugly and fat and stupid and all the rest of it you are. And and you do develop um, a thicker skin anyway, because you have to, because if you took it to heart every time people were horrible about you, then you wouldn't get up in the morning. Indeed, although I think still it shouldn't happen. I mean, we have seen the absolutely most horrible consequences no long ago uh, with the presenter of Love Island. Uh, we have seen it with other... Um, I mean, I still miss uh, Amy Winehouse. I miss her genuinely every day. I miss what the artist that she could have become. I miss uh, I miss the music that she was going to make. I miss so many things. I, I found her incredibly inspirational as an artist, and I am still very angry about how she was treated. Um, and I think you know it needs to stop um, because not all of us have either the 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 the, the resilience 
or the network around us and the family support to survive these things. Mm, I agree. I, I agree. I mean, Amy Winehouse, the, the film, did you see the film? I did. It was, it was oh, wonderful, wasn't it? And heartbreaking. And, you know, I, I'm so hopeless at uh, sort of popular TV and so on that I hadn't even heard of Caroline Flack. But do you know what? She lived upstairs and she killed herself upstairs <gasps> in my block. Oh, my God. Um, because I I'd heard that there was a kerfuffle that day and I heard a policeman outside my front door and later discovered that a young woman had committed suicide in London I saw on Twitter in North London and I I I thought well I knew that someone had committed suicide that afternoon upstairs and I was really upset I didn't even know who she was and then I suddenly realized well it must have been her it was incredibly upsetting just awful and yes people do get pushed right over the edge by this stuff so you're absolutely right to say it's not acceptable of course it isn't but we also have to find ways to deal with it because well if we want to stay alive we have to find ways to deal with this stuff Mm, indeed (laughs) Indeed. Um, in terms of you talked about the front pages awful front pages (laughs) have you had any other sort of dreadful experiences or or disappointments or failures during your work life Oh, I'm sure I have. I have. <laughs> and and if and uh, assuming you have, because most of us have, what has enabled you to get through them? I think, um, I think that that is the one beautiful thing about the life performing arts, is that you have good shows and you have dreadful shows and you have shows where you spend three hours on the stage crying inside and wanted to run back home and hide under your blanket. Um, But it is just that moment and very often horrible shows that you feel really were not what you wanted to offer have been perceived very positively by people in a, you know, they have felt something different than what you were feeling. And other shows that you felt really proud of did not actually uh, translate into, into that feeling for the audience. So it was, it is a learning curve, but it is also, I guess the one thing that you learn is that there's always another goal. There's mm. always another chance, mm. you know. Okay, that, that did not work. You rehearsed three months for that premiere and actually you fell flat on the floor in the first run into the stage and that made you nervous and the hell three hours after that were a complete waste of time from your point of view um that was interesting to learn that that did not necessarily read the same but also that you had another show at the end of the week mm. um and i guess it's that it's, it's learning to the next day you know after you've had your cried and your and your terrible night and and whatever if you need to have a drink whatever it is that you need to do the next day you get up and you get back into the studio and back into ballet bar and back to the beginning and you build yourself up uh, and then you face the audience again and and that's the way that we need to run our professional lives and I guess that is the kind of resilience that an artist can can have to face other things in life and do you think it's something you can teach other people or do you think you just have to live through it to get it I think it's something you can share up to a point but I think it's something that 
you do need to learn by practice. Um, and I think that is why it's so important to allow young people to perform, even if it's in an amateur way, you know, in the school show, uh, to understand what it is to create something in a group and so that it, you're not alone on that stage, that you have a group of people that have been building this thing with you and that if you, for whatever reason, are having a bad day, they have your back. Um, there's so many things about performing that are so uh, constructive as, as an experience in, in building relationships, in building empathy, in forgiving flaws. I think one of the things I love more about my own career is having been able to play really bad characters, really flawed characters, because it has given me the ability to forgive myself a little uh, of my own flaws and, and failures. Um, so I think that's why I, I think it's so important that, that children get to play roles and they get to play being other people and they get to play being other genders and they get to play being other cultures and other traditions. And, and that hopefully gives you a, a, an understanding of each other. Mm. Wonderful. And you've, you've achieved so many things. You've won so many awards. You've been awarded the CBE. Mm. What have you been most proud of in your career so far? Uh, I think for me in general, it has been the success of the company because, of course, you do feel a great sense of, of, of wonder and, and pleasure on your own achievements. And, of course, seeing my parents come to, to the, the, the palace to see me receive a CVE, you know, from a country I am an immigrant in <laughs> was incredible. I mean... <laughs> It was, you know, just the whole the whole day was absolutely fantastic. And I think you always want to make your parents proud. So so that was a great day for me. But but in as a person for myself, it is to see the dancers of the company feel proud on the stage. You know, when we have been invited to great opera houses like Paris Opera, you know, the beginning of ballet, the, the absolute temple of ballet, and then the Bolshoi in Moscow, to be guest company, a company relatively um, humble, like it is in this national ballet, uh, that does not have a theater of, of our own, that we don't have, you know, this all of this uh, infrastructure that other companies have, to be invited as a guest of honor to these great places, and to see my dancers just feel so proud on the stage, it's just a beautiful thing. How fabulous. And obviously this is a very bleak time for everybody, but in particular for arts organisations, because it looks as though arts venues are not going to be open for quite a while. I know you've been invited onto a government task force looking at the uh, what can be done to um, keep arts and culture going along with other so-called leisure industries. I think you've had a meeting today are you confident that the government are aware of the issues and will be trying to engage with them in a constructive way? And has it left you feeling a bit more hopeful? It has. It really has. I think um, not only this group, uh, which has 
very senior and very important figures of the arts, but also the other subgroups that are going to be creating uh, the, the recommendations for the government are all from within the arts. And the fact that they are engaging with us, with every aspect from tourism to performing arts, theatres, uh, retail, obviously ballet, um, theatre, opera, uh, orchestras, freelancers, the fact that the conversation is already starting and that it is being led by so many uh, important people in our industry, um, that is encouraging. Um, so so I, I am hopeful and, and you know, we are in a very, very difficult time. I don't think the performing arts have ever been at a worst time in our history, but also we are resilient, we are creative. And if we get the support at the beginning, um, we will be able to be, again, to bounce back to being one of the leading industries of this country. Um, at a time where the identity of the country um, will need us to be at the forefront of international relationships, as well as uh, the starting engine of many other industries that depend on the creative industry. So I, I am hopeful that we can be once again the important part of, of this nation's well-being, both financial, economical, emotional, and and uh, and uh, psychological well-being that 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 the creative industries and the performing arts are in the UK. That is an inspirational note to end on. Thank you so much, Tamara. I really, really appreciate you giving me your time. I wish we could have a glass of wine and just chat a bit more now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> one, one day when the world is back to something like normal, I hope we'll be able to do that. But uh, in the meantime, many, many, many thanks. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Christina. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share it or rate it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. And if you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended lockdown reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week.